Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today, for Spirit in Action, we'll be experiencing something new together. My name is Catherine Thomas, and you may have heard me mentioned in the credits of episodes in the past as providing production assistance, but this is my very first interview, so thank you very much for coming along for the ride. Our guest today is Spencer T., host of the Recovery Show podcast, which explores addiction recovery through 12-step programs. Spencer and his guests are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts. They share their experiences and, just as importantly, the solutions they found to live happier, more centered lives. In today's program, we'll be honoring the 12-step tradition of anonymity by referring to Spencer by his first name and last initial only. Before we talk with Spencer, let me invite you to fill out our listener survey at northernspiritradio.org. When we know you better, we can serve you better. And for you, you have an opportunity to win your choice of either $25 or a really nice bundle of Northern Spirit Radio swag. And you can win simply by talking about yourself. It's egotism rewarded. So check it out and fill it out at northernspiritradio.org. And now on to today's program. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic myself, and as such, it was easy for me to recognize the healing nature of Spencer T.'s work through the Recovery Show podcast. I found the podcast to be helpful not only because it speaks to recovery from addiction and alcoholism, but also because it speaks to how do we live a meaningful life generally. Spencer began the Recovery Show podcast in 2012, and since then he has created 248 episodes, one per week. And I invite you to listen, subscribe, and contribute to The Recovery Show at therecoveryshow.com. Today, Spencer joins us through Skype from southeastern Michigan. Spencer, thanks for joining us for Spirit in Action. My pleasure. My pleasure. Always uh, carrying the message, I guess. I know that is one of the steps, and we'll get to talking about the 12 steps and traditions a little bit later in the show. But first, I'd like to know a little bit more about your personal history with addiction and alcoholism. When did they first enter your life? That's actually a really interesting question because I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that the things that I learned as a child about how to get along in the world, about how to interact with other people, are traits that I can now identify as what we might call codependent. So whether or not there was direct alcoholism, there is some effect that has come down through my family, through the way that I learned to be growing up, that maybe made it more likely that I would get into a relationship with an alcoholic. Because one of the things that I really thought it was my job to do as a young person and into adulthood was to fix other people when they had a problem. And I'll tell you, there's nobody that turns that thing on more than an addict or alcoholic. So what can I say? The alcoholism that brought me to recovery sort of came in gradually. I didn't see it happening. I can see it looking back. But at the time, all I knew was that my loved one drank more than I thought was good, that there were some effects. Falling down is one of those effects, but also just the effects on the family dynamic, the fear that I started to develop, the anxiety that something could go horribly wrong and that this needed to be addressed. And so that came gradually, but I really was not willing to apply the word alcoholism to what I was seeing because I had this picture in my head from society, from movies, etc., 
that an alcoholic was somebody sitting under the railroad bridge with a 40-ouncer in a paper bag or somebody who propped up the bar until the bar closed. That was what I thought alcoholism meant. And my loved one didn't fit that picture, so it couldn't be alcoholism, right? And eventually reality smacked me upside the head, and I came to a realization that this is what was going on. And what really got me moving into recovery, I was at a program at a recovery center where my loved one was in treatment, and they said some words that day, and I might have heard those words before because I had been to other such programs, but what they said to us that day was that we didn't cause the disease, that we couldn't cure the disease, and that we couldn't control it. And that could sound just horribly depressing, but what I felt in that moment was lightness. I felt the relief of a burden that I really hadn't recognized consciously that I was carrying, a burden that was not mine to bear. And feeling that come off of me, and I mean, literally, I felt lighter. I felt like I could breathe. The other thing that happened that day was I picked up a little flyer. It's just one sheet of paper, both sides, not even a full sheet. And it has 20 questions about, have you ever, did you ever, et cetera, kind of questions. And I looked at those questions, and I tried to answer them as honestly as I could. And I answered yes to 16 of the 20 questions. And I answered maybe to one more. And there were three that I was pretty sure that I had never done. I had never called the police to our house, you know. And then at the bottom was the kicker for me. It said, if you answered yes to one or more of the above questions, Al-Anon may be for you. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I got a degree in math here, and 16, I think, is bigger than one. So that evening, I, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I really don't remember what anybody said. But what I do remember, by the end of that meeting, I know I was not alone anymore. Because living with alcoholism and addiction, for me at least, was tremendously isolating. Because I didn't feel I could talk about it to anybody. I couldn't talk about it with my family. I couldn't talk about it with my friends. I didn't talk about it with my doctor. Why would I, right? So I was just holding all this stuff inside. And now here was at least one room full of people who actually understood what was happening in my life. And that was enough to get me to come back. There's a particularly fitting song by a local musician that I'm going to introduce here. It's called Black Dog by Anastasia Vishnevsky. And it's about how it feels to be hounded by addiction, don't mind the pun, or depression, especially when it seems that there's nowhere to go where we'll be understood. Black Dog by Anastasia Vishnevsky. Let's shout now. Black Dog, you got me living in a default. You got me backed into a corner and I can't get out Let's shout now, black dog Black dog Wanting back to lie abandoned corpse Claw at my back and bite me without remorse Shout now, black dog Always there at my side He follows me Nowhere to run and hide Please let me be Oh, won't you black dog growl and howl Nip at my heels until you bring the dark Nobody says bad as your bug Let's shout now black dog Black dog at my back Without warning you arrive and attack no, I have my soul and you won't give it back I want it back Shout now, black dog 
Shadow the doggies hard to shake your tick, you break, you cause heartache. You try to fight him, but you find he rapes your mind till you're out of time. His breath is hot as he eats your brain, become addicted to his pain. His dark overtakes, overwhelms, he's your companion in this hell. Always there at my side, he follows me. Nowhere to run and hide. Please let me be, oh, won't you? Dog, go away. I don't need your hounding, sounding evil. Go and play. I'll tell my soul for you not to stay here. Run away now, black dog. Black dog, let me be. Black dog, set me free. Black dog, let go of me. Black dog, you're a black dog. Black dog, he's a black dog. You're my black dog. That was Black Dog by Anastasia Vishnevsky. Before we played that song, we were talking about the isolation that can come with being in a relationship with an alcoholic or an addict. I can relate to that from my personal experience where alcoholism is just something you don't talk about with other people, even people that are close to you. I don't know if it's shameful or you just don't want to ask for help or bother other people. All those things. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And the community that many people find in 12-step programs is something that I would like to talk about. Sure. That's been very important to me because it's been a place where I can talk about these things that we don't talk about in normal society. We just don't. And we don't talk about a lot of things. You know, we don't talk about depression. We don't talk about the fact that maybe, you know, we have cancer. Who knows? Those are not things that come up when you're sitting around the lunch table at work or out to dinner with friends. It just doesn't happen. Maybe we don't want to trouble people, like you said. People don't need to know about my troubles. Or maybe there's shame, and, and I certainly felt that. I was supposed to be able to fix this situation. I was born in the 50s. I was brought up in the 60s and 70s. And the message that I got was, as a male in American society, that I was supposed to be able to do anything, and I was supposed to fix everything. And I only had to look around my family. I mean, my father was the ultimate handyman around the house, and you know he could do anything. And so I thought I should be able to do that. And so not being able to do that felt shameful. And also just the social stigma of alcoholism in general. It's not something you want to you know just lay out there. What I found, of course, when I started laying it out there is there's a lot more of us out there than I thought there were. That is one of the things that makes it so hard for those of us who love alcoholics and addicts because our problem's not obvious to the people around us. What they saw for me was that I was really angry a lot of the time. I could just explode at people at work, at my children, and that's what they saw. Spencer has an anger problem. You know, Spencer didn't actually have an anger problem. What Spencer had was an alcoholism problem that was manifesting as anger because he didn't know what to do with it. And here I'm talking about myself in the third person. Okay. <laughs> One of the hard things, but I think really powerful things that I learned sitting in these rooms of recovery is how to talk about myself 
in the first person, how to say, I feel, I do, rather than distancing it, as so many of us do, and as I still do sometimes by saying you. You know, when you feel really upset, well, you get angry. When I was afraid, I was angry. I was the rage guy. I would scream and pound the table at my children, and man, that is not the person I wanted to be. I just didn't know how to not do it. So that was the way that my disease, if we want to call it that, my dis-ease manifested. Doesn't look like alcoholism, doesn't look like addiction. The alcoholic or the addict, when their disease gets really bad, it's usually pretty obvious to the people around them. When mine gets bad, all they see is a grumpy guy and a guy who doesn't want to talk and a guy who goes and, and hides. And so it's, I think, harder for those of us who are not the alcoholic, not the addict, to understand that recovery can help us, to understand how recovery can help us, and to understand that we need it at all. Yeah, I found your podcast through a friend of mine remarking that children of alcoholic homes often grow up to have perfectionistic tendencies, which <laughs> I recognize in myself. And that had never occurred to me that there was a connection there. So I had to go home and Google perfectionism, procrastination, and alcoholism. That led me to your three Ps episode of the podcast, which I think is episode 219, Perfection, Procrastination, and Paralysis. Yeah. And listening to that made me realize that, wow, I may not be living with the alcoholic anymore, and my life may not be so obviously impacted by alcoholism, but it doesn't mean that it's not still impacted. Yeah. Because having grown up in that situation and learning coping mechanisms and various kinds of behavior to defend myself, I guess, and all those behaviors have carried over into adulthood without my realizing where they came from. Absolutely. And I think I want to move forward a little bit because I'm talking about the problem. Every good story starts with a problem, moves through some sort of climax to a resolution, right? One of the climaxes of my story had that awakening. And we talk about the 12 steps, and at this point, I want to bring in the first step, which is that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And that day, in that lecture room, I felt the truth of that in my heart. I couldn't have put the words to it because I didn't know the words. But again, looking back, I can recognize that that is when I accepted my powerlessness that I accepted the unmanageability of my life and that therefore I needed to do something and that what I had been doing was not getting me where I needed to be. And so that is, you know, one of the peaks in the story. Then there's a long, slow resolution where I attended meetings. I started to hear what people were saying. I started to see that these people were some of them still living with active alcoholism as I was, but they were not in the same emotional state that I was in. Many of them were having happy experiences and they were enjoying their lives. And I was like, I want that. How do I get that? And the answer that I heard and the answer that I didn't want to hear, I think, is, well, how we got it was by working through these 12 steps of recovery for ourselves. And I was like, you know, I'm not the one with the problem here, but I don't know what else to do. And so I started to work my way through those steps. And the second step was one that was really hard for me. The second step is that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I really wasn't sure that there was such a thing. I liked the restore me to sanity part. That sounded good. But power greater than myself, my brain 
reads those words and turns them into those three letters, G-O-D. And at that point in my life, that was a word that made me very uncomfortable. I really didn't believe in the societal view of a God that is all-knowing and all-controlling. But what I could do, and this is the beauty of these steps, the little baby steps, what I could do was say, well, there are certainly powers that are greater than me. And I am finding in these meetings some restoration of sanity. And so somehow some power greater than me is working through the people, the meetings, the literature of the program to help restore my sanity. And so I could take that little baby step and say, okay, there is something. I don't know what it is, but there is something. And then we move on to the third step, which is is a lot harder for me, which is that we made a decision to put our will and our lives into the care of our higher power. It actually says into the care of God as we understood him. And again, language there gets in my way, um, but I could understand the concept that I'm going to move forward and that I'm going to trust whatever God there might or might not be to help me get recovery. Looking back, I can see that sticking with the program and working it as the people who had gone before me said, this is the way to go. I had put my will and my life into the care of a power greater than myself because I was committed to doing this thing that I really didn't understand. I kept going to meetings, and I started to feel better. This was the mystery of this recovery thing. I had no idea how it was going to work. I had maybe a little bit of confidence that it could work only because I saw it working for other people. And I remember vividly, after a meeting, I was talking with a friend, and the friend said, you know, how are you? How was your, how was your day? Something, something innocuous like that. And I paused and I said, you know, I was not angry all day. I was not fearful all day. I was not in despair all day. Maybe this is what serenity means. Because in the words that we very often open our meetings with, it says we can find serenity and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. And at this point, the alcoholic in my life was still drinking, but I wasn't caught up in it like a headpan. And that was, I think, the first time where I really saw how this recovery thing was working for me. So that's the story, and the story continues because, this, you know, as you say, I came to recovery in 2002, and obviously I've been there for a long time, and people are like, why are you still coming? And I'm just going to finish the recovery story with those two answers to that. One is a question that I often put it forward as, so you go to the gym, and do you go to the gym once or twice and say, yeah, I got this exercise thing, I'm good now? Probably not. I need to keep going to meetings, I need to keep working the program for myself because it strengthens my emotional and spiritual muscles and keeps them toned. And if I don't do it, I backslide, just like if I don't go to the gym, my physical health backslides. The second answer is, in the 12th step of our program, which in part says we tried to carry this message to others, because there were people who were there when I came into recovery, I found it. I need to pay that forward. I need to be there for the person who is coming in in despair because their husband, their wife, their son, their daughter, their parent is caught in the grips of addiction and alcoholism and they don't know what to do. And I need to be there to say, I was there, and this is what I did, because that's what everybody else did for me. So I came in 2002, and I started the podcast with some friends in 2012, and I think the question you want to ask me is probably why or how. Yeah, that was my question. (laughs) 
And perhaps something in your personal background made a podcast seem like an obvious way for you to carry out the message. Actually, no. That's the funny thing here is my training was intended to bring me into the ranks of the collegiate professorships. And I did that for seven or eight years before uh, the university that I was working at and I came to a mutual agreement that it wasn't working. But I really enjoyed the teaching part. And so I had a lot of practice in standing up in front of a class and talking about something for 50 minutes. So I did have that background. But what happened was a friend of mine had and still has a podcast focused more on AA recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous recovery. He's up to, I think, over 900 episodes now. And he's doing it because he feels that it's his mission in life to carry this message. He asked me in, I think it was early 2012, if I would come be a sometime guest on his podcast. And my first reaction was, eek! <laughs> I really had to think about it. And this gets partly to the anonymity thing that we talk about. We talk about these being anonymous programs. And I think I'm going to speak about that for a minute because that was really critical in deciding to do this and in the way that it's structured. So we have a tradition that we are anonymous. The explicit words of the tradition say something like the level of press, radio, films, and television. And nowadays we usually add in internet because that's such a big thing in so many people's lives. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that particularly for people who maybe are in Alcoholics Anonymous or for those of us who are related to somebody who's in Alcoholics Anonymous, exposing their identity can cause bad effects on their life, their insurability, their job prospects, a lot of things because of the stigma, because of the potential health risks of their behavior. So that's one reason for the anonymity. And I think that's the reason that most people understand when they just hear about it, it's like, well, of course you don't want to tell everybody you're an alcoholic. Well, I know people who are fine about saying up front, I'm an alcoholic in recovery. The other purpose of the anonymity works within the program, which is that it is a person-to-person -person program. We find our recovery by connecting with other people who have been where we have been. And if we bring into that issues of status of, oh, well, that person, you know, is some celebrity, that can actually damage our ability to carry the message or to hear the message. So that, for example, in our meetings, we may have people who are health professionals, who are therapists. They are actually discouraged from identifying themselves as such because when they're in that context, they are just one more person seeking recovery. And we have a tradition that says our, our recovery shall be forever non-professional. The other purpose for me of the anonymity, and I just want to be another person in the conversation. I don't want to be somebody on a pedestal. I don't want to be an authority because I know I'm not. I'm authority. I'm an authority on my own experience. And that's the only person, the only thing that I'm an authority on. And, and so by remaining as anonymous as I can, I hope to make it more equal. The third thing for those of us who are in Al-Anon or ACA program is that we don't want to out the other people in our lives, the person whose behavior brought me into the program in the first place. And I have actually talked to my loved one about the fact that I'm doing this thing and have gotten an assurance that it's okay for me to talk about it. So I, I went and I started participating in his podcast, which is called Recovered. And 
I really enjoyed it. We had great conversations. What I have found over the years is that most of the recovery, whether you're an alcoholic, whether you're a narcotics addict, whether you're an Al-Anon, whether you're an adult child, a lot of the recovery is the same once we get past the actual substance or reason that brought us here. So we talk about higher power. We talk about those other steps in the middle that I haven't detailed about taking an inventory, about sharing that with another person, about making amends for the, the wrongs that we have committed. We can have great conversations about that every now and then. When we get to alcohol or we get to being related to an alcoholic, then the conversation would go in different directions. So I really enjoyed it. And at one point we got, I don't know, an email or a phone call from a listener saying, man, whenever Spencer talks, I just don't know what he's talking about. I don't understand it. <laughs> and I said, hey, maybe we should do a whole episode about Elanon. And my friend said, maybe you should do a whole podcast about Elanon. And I was like, really? <laughs> that elevated quickly? Yeah. <laughs> that thought had not crossed my mind. And it was sort of shocking. And there were, uh, Swetha and Kelly, who joined me at the outset, I think both had participated in the Recovered Podcast at some point. And we had talked about it and, and said, hey, okay, let's try this thing. What the heck? We have a model to work from, having a conversation about a topic and recording it. And so let's try it. And the first time we got together, we sat around my computer and we talked for, I think, 20 minutes about boundaries. I'm like, hmm, that went pretty well. So let's keep going. And after not quite a year, they both decided that they needed to focus on other things in their life and that they were not able to continue to participate in the, in the podcast. And there is an episode out there titled Changes where you can hear my reaction to that. I was not real happy about it, but I also knew I needed to keep going. So we'll be continuing our conversation with Spencer T. of the Recovery Show podcast in just a minute. But first, this is a reminder that you're listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find 13 years of programming for free listening and download. And you'll also find links to our guests. So if you want to find Spencer and the Recovery Show and you happen to forget that the web address is therecoveryshow.com, We've got you covered. And you can post comments there as well and find your way over to the donation button. This is full-time work. It's funded by you, the listeners, not by corporations or government. And we at Northern Spirit Radio also encourage you to support your local community radio stations. Community radio is dedicated to highlighting the voices and the stories that mainstream media often overlooks so to keep the public square broad and wide by supporting your local community radio stations. All right, now we will go back to today's program. We're talking with Spencer T., host of the Recovery Show podcast, which you can find at therecoveryshow.com. We were just talking about the early development of the podcast, where he initially started with two other hosts before becoming the, the primary host himself, which he has been now since 2013. So I was going to ask you a little bit about how you figured out your format for the programs. So you have a couple different elements going on. You have some readings that you begin with and discussion about the topic of the episode. You talk about some of the meetings that you've attended, then how you carry out the 12 steps in your life. And you also include listener feedback, and you even have some music linked to the episodes. Absolutely. So the initial format was modeled very much after my friend's recovered podcast. 
which, by the way, you can find at recoveredcast.com. And there are plenty of people who listen to it who are also Al-Anons or probably not even alcoholics because I find it really, really helpful. Anyway, the initial format came from the way that he had structured his program, which opens with the discussion. That's the bulk of, of the episode, typically. And then the next segment, which we call Our Lives in Recovery, is where we talk about how we're using recovery in our daily lives. Because I think that's something that has been important to me, is to recognize that these things that I have learned in the program, they apply in all aspects of my life. That's actually also part of the words in Step 12 as we practice these principles in all our affairs. So we felt that modeling how we use these steps or the slogans or all these things that we learn in the program, how we use them in day-to-day life, dealing with family, dealing with coworkers, dealing with drivers that cut in front of us on the highway, adds another dimension to the whole recovery message. It's not just about the alcoholism or the addiction. So there's that segment. And then, as you say, there's a listener feedback where people send emails or leave voicemails. We have a Google Voice number that we can get voicemails on. Some people will record something on their smartphone and email it. I have felt from the beginning, and I think this is part of the experience that I had in the other podcast, that getting multiple voices into the conversation, it's not just important. I think it's critical. There are so many podcasts that are one person talking for the topic that that podcast is covering. That may be perfect. But I think in this particular area where we're talking about personal recovery from pain, from addiction, from depression, whatever, however that disease expressed in in my listener's life, that getting different viewpoints in there, getting different experiences in there, I don't think I could carry the message effectively without doing that. And I'll I'll maybe pull out an example or two here. One is an episode that I did earlier this year, might have been late last year, where we talked about, I talked with um, one person about her experience in the Adult Children of Alcoholics program. I couldn't talk about that. I have no experience with that program. But she was able to talk about what she had found there, why she felt that her program in Al-Anon and in Adult Children of Alcoholics complemented each other and what the differences were and why she needed both of them in her life. I couldn't have carried that message. And I have gotten many responses from people saying, thank you for that particular message. I'm dealing with a spouse who drank alcoholically for years. I'm dealing with the effects that had on my life. Other people are dealing with a child who is maybe just getting into their addiction or maybe grew up with an alcoholic parent or parents. I can't reflect those experiences. I can't talk about those experiences. And so I need those other voices to come in. I need that broadness of experience in order to most effectively bring this message of hope and healing to my listeners. And as far as I could tell, I'm doing a reasonable job of it. I just happened to look at my stats the other day, and in the month of May, I had either four or five episodes out, I'm not sure, and I had 60,000 listens. And some of that is people who are going back and listening to the old stuff, because that's the other thing I hear is that, you know, this 240, you said 247, I actually posted 248 this morning. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to check it out later. It keeps coming. So people go back and listen from the beginning, or they pick the ones that seem important, like you picked the three Ps, the perfectionism, procrastination, paralysis episode. I definitely, typically, I'm going to see five to 6,000 listeners per episode, and that's a huge audience. 
the first episode we put up, probably a couple of friends listened to it. And by the time we'd been going for a couple of months, we might have had maybe 100 listens to an episode after a couple of weeks. And I hear from my listeners, people who can't get to a meeting. I had one person write to me who lives somewhere out in the rurals of Australia and has to drive 20 or 30 miles to get to the nearest meeting and is a single mother with young children. And so it's very difficult. But through the podcast, she's able to hear the voices of other people from all over the world with varying experiences and get some healing, get some hope for her situation. And there's a lot of people that are out there that for whatever reason, maybe it's the middle of the night. Okay, we're there 24-7. It's always there. I feel like the formula I've got is working. And in fact, I recently asked, how about this lives and recovery segment? Sometimes that segment feels a little bit like phoning it in. Like, yeah, well, I went to my meetings and this is what we talked about. Okay, moving on. But sometimes I feel like I also have something or, or one of my guests has something really, you know, deep to share. And I said, I'm thinking about, is this important? And I got a bunch of responses saying, keep it. I like it. It's important to me. Okay, I'm going to keep doing it. Music. We started out actually including pieces of music in the episodes at the breaks. The reason for the music and the reason that I keep picking music is that we each learn, we each experience in different ways. And so if I can bring in a different mode of learning or a different mode of hearing, sometimes a song will just nail something for me that somehow I can't express it in words. I do have music that I play at the beginning and the end and in the breaks. Uh, it was a piece that the composer gave me the rights to use, and he's actually retitled it with parenthesis, The Recovery Show. So that's the structure. That's where that came from. But for me, the, the real meat of it is this conversation that we have. And I structured that around the template that has the boilerplate, you know, the introduction and the things that we always say in the middle, the beginning and end after each break. Here's where the music goes, or here's where the discussion of the song goes. Here's where we put a reading. Oh, yes, we start with a reading because, again, it's, it's a matter of getting a different voice and maybe a somewhat more structured voice to kind of set the tone of a topic or something like that or to illuminate an aspect of a topic. And in some conversations, we bring in multiple readings. We often open our meetings with a reading. We have these books that have a reading for every day, and so there's lots of little short readings that we can pull out on particular topics. And it's just really helpful to bring in a little bit of the voice of the program. Usually it's from Al-Anon literature. So we start with the reading, and then I usually have a short outline with questions. And if it's just me, I may, as I did for the episode I posted this morning, I actually sort of wrote a monologue, which I didn't read precisely when I recorded the episode, because I had things that I wanted to say, and I wanted to be more precise about how I said them. But if I'm having a conversation with somebody, we'll have these bullet points, these questions, and try to address them in order. But conversations go where conversations go. Mostly these days, my guests are remote, so... I'm talking by phone or Skype or FaceTime or one of those technologies and recording it. Sometimes I have in-studio guests. That hasn't happened a lot recently. It's somehow easier for me to get somebody who lives on the other side of the country to meet up uh, virtually for a conversation than to have meet up physically with somebody from the same town. I don't yeah, know. Go figure. Maybe it's just <laughs> a bigger pool. I don't know. 
Yeah. And so I send out the script, but then we have a conversation and it's guided by the questions and I try to hit the key points. Usually we manage to do that. Sometimes we don't, but the conversation goes where it goes. I know also that what you include with each episode, usually several questions that relate to whatever the topic of the episode is. So for instance, episode 247, negative into positive question is, what have been your experiences when what you thought was a negative became a positive? Yeah. Steps four and 10, they're about taking inventories. And I'm relating that process to asking a lot of questions. And if you spend any time (laughs) around Quakers, which I do, uh, Mm. regular practice is to ask queries, which we use to examine how we're living and what our values are. Mm -hmm. What do you find valuable about including questions with each episode? Well, I guess there's a couple of purposes there. One is to maybe encourage a listener to think. As I said, I did come up through the educational path. So encouraging people to think is right there in in my DNA. But also to encourage conversation. Because I know that what I and my guest have said is not the whole story. It's a small part of the story. And sometimes one of the listeners will come back with something that just, whoa, didn't think of that. And so, again, bringing those other voices in is really part of what I'm trying to do. And so the questions are partly to encourage those other voices to come in. I know it's a lot easier to speak up and say something when you have a specific question or point to address. If we can ask the right question, then a conversation starts. And that's what I want. I want a conversation. And and it's a conversation that obviously stretches over multiple weeks if we're actually going back and forth with somebody writing or calling in with something and then somebody else responding to that. And that's it's a beautiful thing. It really is. It's long-form conversations. It gives you a chance to think in between. You know, you asked in your email that, or you said in your email that one of the themes of this particular show is about healing. I've talked about how This program heals me, how it continues to heal me. So the way that we find healing in the 12-step communities is by sharing our own hope, our own strengths, our own learnings, and by hearing other people's the same. And by taking those things that work for us, and one of the things we say is take what you like and leave the rest, because I know that at least half of what I say doesn't work for you, but hopefully some small portion does. And I have had so many times the experience of listening to somebody else talk about their experience, whether it's their experience with addiction or their just experience with life, and suddenly realizing, oh my God, I do that too. I have never seen that before. I've never recognized that. Why are you, how are you living in my head? And that's how I get to healing. We do need other people to help illuminate new ways of seeing things. And Carrie Newcomer wrote a song called A Small Flashlight that speaks to this. Let's listen before we resume our conversation with Spencer. The way is dark up ahead of me The way is dark and I cannot see What I love a flashlight beam lighting up the way when I cannot see The 
That was a small flashlight by Carrie Newcomer. Step three falls right into this theme of light and searching. What was working that step like for you, Spencer? The first time I saw those 12 steps and I saw this step that said that we took a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, I was like, I'm never doing that. <laughs> you know, Self-examination was not part of my life, I'll tell you. By hearing, seeing understanding the experiences of others who have done that, I came to understand the power of the self-examined life for healing. Because if I don't know what's wrong, there's very little chance I'm going to be able to do something about it. And if I refuse to look at myself, I'm not going to know what's wrong. There's so much wisdom in the, in the structure there of these things that we're like, ah, do I really have to, do I really have to share my wrongs with another human being? Yes, I do. Because it makes it real. It's really easy for me to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I do this thing. I procrastinate. But when I have to sit down and, and, and talk to another person and say, yeah, you know, I'm a real procrastinator and I don't get things done and it really bugs the heck out of me. All of a sudden, it's a lot more real for me. And now that it's real, now I can own it. And now I can ask for help to change, which is those follow-on steps. And that's how healing works for me in these 12-step programs, is I learn from other people, I see their experience, and I understand how to apply it in my own life. Or I just, as I did the first day I walked in, I know I'm not alone. I am not the only person who did this. I am not the only person who had this experience. I am not the only person who was so stupid, because my self-talk can get really destructive. And understanding that somebody else has done exactly the same stupid things makes it feel less stupid, doesn't it? 
makes it easier to accept myself, to love myself, and to accept that the universe loves me. And that's part of my own spiritual journey, that coming into the program, as I said earlier, with with that G-O-D word, that big G word being something that I couldn't even really say to myself, to being able to say, I have a God in my life. I don't know what that God looks like. I don't know how that God works. I just know that I have one, that I am loved, and that if I listen, and that is that third step, turning my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God, that if I listen, I will get guidance that will bring me to the right place for me or a right place for me. That's my personal spiritual journey, and I found myself blessed to find a spiritual community of which I'm a part here that allowed me to make that journey from agnosticism to, I don't know what you could call it, vagueism, um, <laughs> without having to leave that community. And that, that also came coincidentally with, and not coincidentally, I was in a painful place and I came to Al-Anon and I came back to a spiritual community in the same year. And that, I believe, is not a coincidence. So having found you know, this healing for myself, I try to carry it out to the world. And most of my listeners still are in the United States, but I do have listeners in India, Australia, Europe. I had a co-host who did 12 shows with me from Germany. We had a little scheduling issues, you know, but we worked sure. it out. Yeah, with the time. <laughs> it's only six hours. Hey. Mm. On your website, you include a map of where people are downloading the Recovery Show episodes. And, you know, you've got all 50 states and then, as you were saying, countries all over the world. And that's just incredible. I, I think it really speaks to the prevalence of alcoholism and addiction to people's lives, whether we talk about yep. it openly or not very openly. Yeah. And I hope that if somebody comes to the Recovery Show who is in that place that I was in or a similar place, afraid to talk about it, ashamed to talk about it, scared to not know what to do, that maybe you can come and, and you can hear the messages that we have. Maybe find some healing, maybe find a little bit of peace of mind. And if the message that we carry resonates with you, I really encourage you to seek out the appropriate recovery community in your locale because even though I'm obviously a big proponent of podcasting now and, and using the Internet to carry the message, I still believe there is nothing that substitutes for face-to-face -face communication, face-to-face -face sharing with another person. But if, if by listening to the podcast you can find that, yes, this is something that I want to try. Maybe it gives you a little more confidence about what's going to happen when you first walk into that meeting. I had no idea. And hopefully that uh, you, know, you can find recovery and, and healing for yourself. I think your work definitely is a large part of that uh, healing for a lot of people. I know that it, it is for me. And we are running against the clock now. Yep. Well, I kind of felt that was like sort of a closing statement, really. <laughs> but if you've got something you want to end with... <laughs> Well, I was going to ask what your greatest hope for the recovery show is and, and where you see it going in the future. My hope is that I can keep on doing this and, until I'm doing it from my wheelchair, I guess. 
you know, there are times when I feel tired. There are times when I think, wow, I have to plan another episode this week. And so I guess another hope is that I keep on being inspired. And I will say that the input, the feedback that I get from my listeners is a big part of, that keeps me going. They say thank you, and I say thank you, because that tells me that I am doing something worthwhile. And, you know, I want to have a life that is worthwhile. And I, I know that I've done a number of worthwhile things in my life. You know, I have, I have two wonderful children who have reached adulthood and are, are independent, knock on wood. Um, <laughs> I have a great relationship with my wife. And that wasn't clear that was going to happen for a while. I have, you know, these kids at church that come every Sunday, even if they don't have to, you know. I feel like there are many meaningful things. And I, and, I, and I have a job that I actually feel that the job that I'm doing, that I've been doing for the past 20-something years, has a greater impact on the world than what I was doing when I was a college professor, which when I realized that was <laughs> a little bit shocking to me. So... I feel like, yeah, I've contributed a lot to the world, but this is this is a huge contribution, I hope. And I hope it continues to be a contribution. I hope that it continues to be something mean, meaningful that I can continue to do. I've already mentioned that uh, listeners can find The Recovery Show at therecoveryshow.com. And certainly there they can listen to any of the 248 episodes that are now <laughs> posted. But I think they can also contribute in other ways. Could you talk about what else people can do? Sure. We do have a donation button because it does cost money to put the thing on. I know the mantra on the Internet is information wants to be free, but the truth of the matter is that making information freely available costs money. It doesn't cost a lot. And there's always a little plug at the end of the show. Say, hey, if you, know, if you want to donate, we have a button. Uh, you can use PayPal if you trust PayPal, which I do. But really... To me, the most important ways in which people contribute to the podcast are, number one, sharing it, sharing it with their friends. I was in a meeting the other day, and I do not push the podcast at Al-Anon meetings, partly because it's not official Al-Anon. And so by tradition, I don't talk about it in a meeting, except maybe to say, yeah, I do a podcast sometimes, but I very, very rarely do that. Sometimes I will share it with a friend after the meeting um, I have some business cards that I hand out to people who are interested. I was in a meeting the other day, and a friend was talking to somebody who was new and said, oh, and Spencer here does a podcast. You should listen to it. That is one of the best things that, that if you're a listener already, you can do um, to support the podcast. And the second thing, and maybe even better from my perspective, is to contribute. Whether it's contributing an email or recording a, a short share, maybe five minutes, that I can play in the podcast or being a guest on the show. And obviously, I would encourage people who are thinking about that to listen first. Um, I get these emails, Dear Bob, we would like to be a guest on your show. And I'm like, yeah, trash that one. <laughs> and on the other hand, I think I've gotten at least one where they they didn't get my name quite right, but it was very clear that they, they had listened to the show and understood what it was about and had something to contribute. That is a huge gift to me because, again, if I have a commitment, this is, this is part of 12-step programs, right? Like we understand that when you have a commitment, you keep coming. 
And if I have a commitment to another person to meet them on the phone or whatever at a particular time, I'm going to do that, right? If I have a maybe commitment to myself and to all those people that I don't see out there to get a podcast episode published by Monday night or Tuesday morning when I try to do it, it's a little bit easier for me to slough on that one. So the people who step up and put their voices out there with me, those are my rock stars. You said uh, somewhere in an episode that uh, the 12-step program is a we program. Absolutely. I think I've had a, probably at least two episodes about, about we. <laughs> Listeners, find information about The Recovery Show at northernspiritradio.org. And while you're at our website, you can find your way over to the donation button. And you can also fill out our listener survey and enter to win either $25 or some really great Northern Spirit Radio swag, including a T-shirt and a tote bag. And even though I have been helping to produce Northern Spirit Radio programs for the past year, I myself only just recently got the T-shirt and the tote bag. So these are exclusive items. But you have to complete the survey for your chance to win. So I encourage you to do that. Well, thank you again, Spencer, for joining us today for Spirit in Action. I am sure that the listeners have found, as I have, or they will when they listen to the recovery show, (laughs) healing and strength that I think your work so obviously fulfills. So thank you again, Spencer, for joining us. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Sandra and Mark Helpsmead for helping me launch my very first radio interview. Also to the listeners who have ridden along so far, I I hope you found something you could enjoy in today's program. We'll see you next time for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 